Hey, if you would, take your Bibles, God's Word this morning, <clears throat> and turn to Acts chapter 1. Acts chapter 1, we'll, we'll kick it off there in verse 8 in just a moment. Uh, but you know, when I, when I look at people like Vihan, and when I see what he is doing, when I see a man that uh, had a choice of following Jesus or staying in his home, and he chose Jesus, when I read the story of the early church in the book of Acts, there's some things that come to mind. There's some thoughts that I have, I, some things that I envision and see. It's a, I see a gospel freedom and a spontaneity here in this church. I see a gospel focus and yet a simplicity. There's gospel joy and peace <clears throat> radiating out of this early church. And then we're going to see this morning, there's some significant gospel power in gospel impact. Now notice I didn't say that they live in comfort. I didn't say that they're living in ease. I didn't say they're leaving, living in security and with safety. Their lives, Vihan's life, is anything other than comfortable, easy, or safe. But there's a powerful gospel simplicity First of all, that flows out of this promise from Jesus in Acts 1, verse 8, when he said, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. You know, when the church began to live out the promise that Jesus made, if you'll flip over to Acts chapter 2, we're going to be all over the, these first two chapters this morning. When you look over in verse 42, down through verse 47, you see a beautiful picture of the pure gospel life. You see a church making a powerful gospel proclamation. It says in verse 42, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and prayers. And all came upon every soul. Hey, just think about it. Think about it. When people drive up and down this road, when they drive past your home, does all come upon them because of what they see out of your life? Out of my life? Well, this is what was happening. All was coming. Wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. All believed, who believed were together. They had all things in common. They were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. Day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with gladness and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And then notice what happened from a church full of people that were living in light of the power of God's Holy Spirit. It says, the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Hey, here's what I've been considering Here's what I want to know. What was it about this early church? What was it about these first century believers, those who sat in the pews, as it were, in that church? What is it about a man like Vihan who would choose willingly to leave his home, his family, safety, security, and all that he ever knew to follow Jesus? What do they have that seems to be missing in my life what did they have that seems to be missing in so many churches 
What is Vihan and his team ministering among Muslims in South Asia? What, does he, what do they have that we don't? Well, I think the answer is tucked in right between Acts chapter 1 verse 8 and Acts chapter 2 verse 42 and following. And I invite you to look in Acts chapter 2 and verse 1. It says, when the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. Now, anytime we start talking about Pentecost, Baptists start to get a little nervous, don't we? Okay? When the, pen, 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 Pentecost, well, okay, don't, don't panic. This was just a day on the calendar. Okay? This was a day, it was actually 50 days after the resurrection of Jesus. It was 10 days after the ascension of Jesus, and uh, there they were sitting in this room after getting the promise from Jesus. The day arrived, they were all together in one place, and suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a rushing mighty wind. I'm here in the air condition going through the uh, thing here, all right? Uh, by the way, it didn't say a rushing mighty wind came. It says a sound like a rushing mighty wind came, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. So all these disciples, these followers of Jesus, in response to his command to wait on the Holy Spirit coming, they were there and they, they heard something. It says, And then divided tongues as a fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. So they heard something and then they saw something and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now today some of you are hoping, Robert, you're going to unpack all of this and explain the tongues and explain all these details. And I'm saying, no, I'm not. Okay? Yeah, you, Pastor Aaron will do that when he comes back. You corner him and you ask him to explain it all. Okay? Uh, we're not going to get down into the depths of that. Uh, I would tell you this, though, that what they're talking about here is very clearly articulated as people who were speaking a known language in order to share the gospel. If you want to figure out all the other stuff, go to 1 Corinthians 13. Here, they were speaking a known language for the purpose of sharing the gospel. And that's exactly what began to happen. Because in the providence of God who had said the gospel was going to go all the way to the ends of the earth, God said, now there were, there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. God had a plan to get the gospel to the ends of the earth, and God was not counting on the obedience necessarily of all these disciples who nonetheless did obey, but God said, I'm going to bring the ends of the earth right here. And at this sound, the multitude came together, and they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not all of these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that each of us hear in, in his own native language? And then it begins to list all the people that had gathered. People from multiple cities and regions, from three continents, all gathered in Jerusalem, and they said, We hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. And they were all amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, What does this mean? 
And that's the first question we want to consider this morning. What does this mean? What did it mean for the 12 and the 120 that were gathered in the upper room? What did it mean for devout men from every nation under heaven in the first century? But more importantly, what does it mean for Vihan, who was out ministering among the 350 million Muslims in South Asia? And what does it mean for you and me in 2022? Well, again, there could be lots of exegetical discussions about the rushing wind, the divided tongues of fire, speaking in tongues. There could be a lot of theological debate about baptism, indwelling, the filling, and the anointing. But the unmistakable, indisputable, undeniable truth that accounts for what the early believers were and what the early believers did was the simple fact that they were all filled with the Holy Spirit of God. Now this did not come as a surprise to these people that were filled with the Spirit. Jesus had just promised them 10 days before, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. What would have been surprising would have been for them not to have received power, for them to have not been filled with the Holy Spirit. So you're not going to find the 12 or the 120 wondering, what does this mean? But I'm afraid that if you polled the average evangelical Christian in the United States, by the way, that's, that's you and me, okay? If we polled the average evangelical Christian in the United States, we'd find many wondering, what does this mean? How, how does this apply to me? I mean, I, I get the 12, the 120, I get those, you know, Jerusalem, but Catawba Valley? What does this have to do with me? And the reason, I believe, is not because there is a deficient doctrine of the Holy Spirit. It's not that we don't understand the doctrine of the Holy Spirit, but it's because of a deficient experience of the Holy Spirit in our lives. So let's consider the question, what is Pentecost? What does the coming of the Holy Spirit mean for you and for me? What is the impact? What did the Holy Spirit do then? But what does the Holy Spirit want to do now? Now, we could go all the way back and start in chapter 1 and work our way all the way through chap the end of chapter 2, and I'm pretty sure I'd be the only one here at the end when we got to the end of chapter. So we're just going to hone in on Two verses right in the middle, uh, right towards the end of chapter 2. And Peter effectively summarizes the promise of Jesus. He effectively summarizes his Pentecost Day sermon in which 3,000 people came to know Jesus when he said this in response, in summary to the question, what does this mean? In verse 37, chapter 2, Peter says, Now when they heard this, that is his gospel sermon, how we explain the coming of Jesus, the death, the burial, and resurrection, they were cut to the heart. The Holy Spirit had come, and the Holy Spirit was doing His office work. The Holy Spirit was coming, and He was bringing conviction of sin and righteousness and, and, and conviction of judgment to come. And the Holy Spirit has come, and they are cut to the heart, 
And then they ask this question, what shall we do? Not just what does this mean, but what shall we do? And Peter told them very clearly, repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you can receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. This morning, three amazing gospel truths that are the outcome of the coming of the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost 2,000 years ago that you can claim, that you should claim, and you should experience in your life today. Here it is, truth number one. The, whole, the coming of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost ensures that when you repent and believe, your sins are forgiven so you can enter into the gospel life. Now you've heard this truth at least dozens, if not hundreds, maybe thousands of times you've heard this truth, but I want you to stop and think about this. Is there anything better than that? You were lost in your sin, but now you've been found in Jesus. You were spiritually dead, but now you've been made alive. Hey, get this. You were an enemy of God. Now, what a friend we have in Jesus. Hey, if you don't understand all of that, bottom line is, you were on your way to hell. But now, you're on your way to heaven. Because of the ministry of the Holy Spirit, who regenerates so that you can be born again, like Jesus told Nicodemus, who baptizes us, who places us into the universal church, the body of Christ, and marks you as his, who regenerates you, who baptizes you, and then who indwells you, as Jesus said, the spirit of truth, for he dwells with you, and he will be in you. Think about this, God above, God above us, became God with us in Jesus, and now it's God in us, in the person of his Holy Spirit. Now it would seem that nothing could be better than your sins be forgiven. You've been born again, made a new person. You've been placed into his church, the body of Christ. You're part of a new community. You've been indwelt by the Holy Spirit. He's taken up residence in your life. And many Christians are content with just that. But I'm here to tell you this morning that it actually gets better. Because when you repent and believe, not only are your sins forgiven so you can enter into the gospel life, but with the indwelling and filling of the Spirit, it is now possible for you to actually live the gospel life. It doesn't, it's not just some intellectual theological truth you know up here. It's something that sinks down into here and works its way out in your hands, your feet, and everything. See, sometimes there's confusion about the filling and the indwelling. Let me just make it very clear. The indwelling of the Spirit happens one time. When you're born again, you get all of the Holy Spirit of God in your life for all of time. The Holy Spirit takes up residence in you. The filling of the Spirit happens many times. 
The filling of the Spirit is not when, the, when you get all the Holy Spirit. The filling of the Spirit is when the Holy Spirit gets all of you. When the Holy Spirit has control over your life. When He determines your agenda, your plans, the size of your bank account, what you do with your money, what you do with your time. The indwelling of the Spirit is when the Holy Spirit takes up residence. The filling of the Spirit is when the Holy Spirit takes up control of your life. And here's what I want to tell you this morning. When the Holy Spirit has control of your life, amazingly powerful things begin to happen. You may be in the midst of sorrow and grief, but if you're filled with the Holy Spirit, He will comfort you. You may be faced with confusion, but the Holy Spirit will guide. You can be walking and living and seemingly overwhelmed with weakness, but when you're filled with the Spirit, He empowers. The Holy Spirit imparts love in the midst of our failures, joy in the midst of our sadness, peace in the middle of our anxiety. The Spirit equips for service. He empowers for witness. In short, when you are filled, that is, controlled, dominated, consumed by the Holy Spirit, you have everything you need in order to live the gospel life. You know, from this text that we've been reading, I don't think there's any better illustration than the Apostle Peter. Peter, you know, uh, before Pentecost, before being uh, indwelt and filled by the Spirit, he was constantly filled with self and arguing with Jesus. You remember Peter? Jesus said, hey, I'm going to have to go to Jerusalem. I'm going to be crucified. Uh, All these things are going to happen. Remember what Peter says? No, Lord, this shall not be so. Can you imagine telling Jesus how it's going to go? He was filled with self. He was filled with fear. Not too long before this, Peter absolutely denied that he even knew Jesus. Peter was filled with anger. Just before Jesus was taken off and crucified, Peter cursed at the name of Jesus. Anybody here identify with Peter? I mean, let's just be honest. We struggle, don't we? We're so consumed with ourselves. But when the Holy Spirit regenerated, indwelt, baptized, and filled Peter, he was a completely different man. Here was the man who had shrunk back at the little servant girl and said, hey, you know that guy? He's now standing in front of all the authorities and all powers, and he's boldly, courageously, confidently proclaiming the gospel power of Jesus without fear. And listen, I want you to know something. This is not a story for the past. This is called to be our experience for the present. Like Peter, when the Holy Spirit has control of you, uh, comes, your sins can be forgiven so that you enter the gospel life. You can be filled with the Holy Spirit so that you can live the gospel life. And finally, you will be sent to the world to proclaim the gospel life. I love that I got on Facebook this week. I saw this this platform look a little bit different uh, earlier this week, didn't it? As you brought boys and girls from this community in order to proclaim the gospel life. I just want to add this, okay? That's not limited to VBS week. That's not limited to VBS week. I'm not going to camp on this very 
very long. I'm just going to just give you my personal uh, take on this from my personal life. My greatest struggle and frustration in my Christian life is the failure to regularly proclaim the gospel near and far. We, we can read Acts 1-8 until we're blue in the face. We can beat ourselves up. We can try harder. But you know what? When we are filled with the Holy Spirit, gospel proclamation just supernaturally happens. One of my favorite verses in the Bible is, is Acts chapter 4, verse 20. Peter and John have been proclaiming the gospel boldly and broadly and it got them into some hot water with the leaders. They're called before the council, the, the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And Peter, remember Peter, the one who, you know, didn't even want to admit he knew Jesus a few weeks earlier, is now out there proclaiming the gospel. They've been doing some healing and things like that. They're called in, they're threatened, and they are ordered. Don't you ever proclaim the name of Jesus anymore. And I love what Peter and John respond in Acts 4, verse 20. He says, we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. Back in Acts 1, 8, Jesus said, you shall receive power. Your pastor's probably shared with you that word power there is the Greek word dunamis from which we get our word dynamite. You get the connection, the power, Okay. So you shall receive dunamis. Chapter 4, verse 20, reads this way. For we are dunamis. It's, it's translated, we cannot, but. Ah, dunamis. You know what Peter and John are saying? Because we have received the power of the Holy Spirit, we are powerless to stop proclaiming the gospel. You wonder why you don't get up naturally in the normal course of your day? I wonder why I naturally am afraid and fearful of speaking up in public? I don't have the dunamis. These men were adunamis. They, did, they were powerless to stop. When we are filled with the Holy Spirit, we will naturally, actually supernaturally, talk about Jesus. So what is the coming of the Holy Spirit? What does all this mean? It means we can be forgiven of our sins. Praise the Lord. Gatabba Valley, amen, okay? Forgiven of our sins. We can be filled with the Spirit. And we can be empowered to proclaim the gospel. Now most of you probably already knew that, didn't you? I mean, I'm looking across. I know a lot of you already. I know your pastor preaches this. I know that you understand so here's the question for the day, is really for us, is not so much what does this mean, although we just have explained it there, but the real question is what the crowds ask in verse 37. So what shall we do? What shall we do? And, and in closing, I just want to give you two points of application, two very simple points. They both start with the, start with the same letter, so you should be able to remember it past lunch today, okay? Just remember these two words, past lunch. Number one, point of application in response to all that the Holy Spirit of God has made available to you as a, uh, as, as a believer in Jesus. Number one, remember the Holy Spirit. Remember 
the Holy Spirit. It's the entire point of what we're talking about today. Most of us already know that the Holy Spirit is available to fill us to live the gospel life. But honestly, I, I'm not asking for a show of hands, but how many of you woke, the, woke up this morning and the first thing you thought of was, I'm filled with the Holy Spirit to live the gospel life. We forget. I, I, don't, I don't want to embarrass Stephen, but I'm just going to go ahead and tell you. Some of y'all may not have noticed this morning, but when, when I was coming up the road to the church, I, I came up behind Stephen's car, and it was a very unusual thing. Stephen was actually out behind his car pushing it. He was. This is a joke, so if you're thinking, he wasn't really, humor me. He was like, and found out, I come to find out, Peter, I mean, Stephen, what's up? And he, sa he said, well, I got in the car this morning and sat behind the wheel and I pushed down on the gas and nothing happened. And he said, so I knew I had to get to church, so he got out of the, threw it in neutral, got out of the car, and he pushed his car all the way from his home to the parking lot. The, the last part was the hardest, coming up the hill in the parking lot. And I said, Stephen, what's wrong? Why, no, why, you know, why didn't... And, and I said, hey, Stephen, did you think to use the key? You know, no, nowadays, it used to be we go in and you turn it, but now it's, you get in and you... Did you have the key? Did you push the button? The Holy Spirit is the key. And, and, and it's not like this... It's not a transaction, but it's like, push the button. Let the power turn on. God's made the Spirit available, but we've, we just go through our lives just, okay, yeah, I'm saved, I'm happy about that. And we forget about the fact that God's given His Spirit to empower us. Paul says, walk in the Spirit. Walk under the control and the influence of the Spirit. And you'll not fulfill the lust." of the flesh. Just before Paul says to the husbands in Ephesians 5, love that woman like Christ loved the church. And then an even harder command, woman, respect and obey and submit to that man. Okay? Before he said any of that, which is really hard stuff, he said, be filled with the Spirit. So much in the Christian life that we, we, we struggle, we strive, we strain, we try to make it happen. It's like Stephen behind that car pushing and pushing and pushing. At the end of the day, we're like, I can't do this anymore. When the simple solution is the key to remember God's giving you His Spirit. Application number two, remember the Spirit. And number two, repent. Repent. Turn away from and turn back to. And I'm going to give you, as we close, three things, three things, three ways to posture yourself. There's many other things, but three ways to posture yourself so that you can experience the power of God's Holy Spirit in your life 24-7, 365. Number one, repent. Turn from your way to God's way. Forsake your pride. Humble yourself. Turn from your way and agree to go God's way. 
You see, prior to Pentecost, all these apostles, disciples, they had all sorts of ideas and suggestions for Jesus. Remember Peter, not so, Lord. This is not going to happen this way. James and John, they were jockeying. In fact, they were such wimps, they actually had their mommy go to Jesus and say, hey, can we get seats, one at the left hand and one at the right hand, when you come into your kingdom? And, and just, just in Acts chapter 1, they were just before Jesus finally said, stop, you shall receive power. They said, hey, is your kingdom about to come in? Is this the time? Is this when we get our thrones? Is this when we get to rule and reign? Hey, they were filled with self. Those terrible disciples. Good thing none of us are like that, right? Good thing none of us just don't want our way all the time. No. But a big change took place. In Acts chapter 1, verse 2, it says Jesus gave them some commands. In Acts chapter uh, 1, verse 4, he says he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem. And when they finally laid down their personal agenda and they accepted Jesus' plan, they waited upon the Spirit, and they were filled. You know, we're no different at all. I'll ask this question in the words of the Apostle Paul. Don't you know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit? The dwelling place of the Holy Spirit? And you've been given the Holy Spirit by God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. Turn from your way to God's way. Secondly, turn from the me to the we. Forsake disunity and pursue unity. You know, so often in our individualistic Western mindset, we view the gospel life as simply God indwelling me. And there's, that is absolutely true. God's Holy Spirit lives and dwells in you. Okay, so he's in you personally. But to experience the filling, we need to acknowledge that we've been baptized. We've been placed into a body, a church. Church universal, you're in the same church as Vihan in Central Asia. You're in the same church as those Muslims in uh, South Asia that have repented of their sin and believed in Jesus. We're all in the universal church, but then it's manifested in the local church here at Catawba Valley and, and other churches around the city and around the world. So not only does our relationship with God impact our filling, but so does our relationship with others. You see, days earlier, these disciples, they'd been jockeying for position. Hey, Jesus, hey, Jesus, can, can we sit at the right hand and the left hand? And, and then the other guys overheard, and they got upset, and they were agitated. They were fighting back. But you know what? Twice, twice the text says they were all together in one accord. They weren't uniform. They didn't all look alike. They didn't think alike. They, didn't, they disagreed on a lot. But they were united in having the same purpose and the same mind. And you know, and what we need in our churches today is a unity like they had the church in the book of Acts. Where they said, everything I have 
is ours. If you need something and I have it, it's yours. I'm sorry, it's what the Bible says. It's not Robert's idea, it's not Robert's plan. It's what the Bible says. It's this turning from this idea of me and my way to us and God's way, which is what is best. Can I remind you that you and I were baptized into the same Spirit? And if we're baptized into the same Spirit, if I'm at odds with you, then I'm at odds with God. If my wife and I are at odds with one another, if I, we're both been baptized into the same spirit we have, and we're at odds with each other, then we're at odds with God. And if you're at odds with your brother or sister in Christ, I don't care why, if you're at odds with them, you're at odds with God. The great, I believe the greatest threat to our personal mission on this planet is not the other political party. It's not the other theological camp. It's not people that don't, that don't do things my way. The greatest obstacle and threat to our personal mission on this planet is the possibility of disunity among brothers and sisters who've all been baptized into the same body by the same Spirit. It quenches the Spirit. It grieves the Spirit. And we do not experience the fullness of the Spirit when brothers and sisters are at odds with one another. So turn from your way to God's way. Turn from the me to the we. And finally, turn from self to God. Repent of self-dependence and live a life of desperate dependence upon God. I noticed something after years and years of studying this passage. I noticed something for the first time when I studied this recently. Jesus never told his disciples to pray while they waited. He said, I want you to stay in Jerusalem. Don't depart. Wait. But he never told them to pray. But in, in verse 14 of chapter 1, we find them that all these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer. And here's the question I had. Why do you think they prayed? Oh, well, they saw Jesus prayed. Okay, I'll give you that. Oh, they knew it was the right thing to pray. I'll give you that. But what in the world would have caused them to stay together for 10 days and pray? I think I know the answer. Jesus had just told them they were going to be witnesses. They were going to live out the gospel life in the midst of a society that was 100% opposed to everything Jesus was about. And then they were being called in order to proclaim that same gospel life, not only in Jerusalem, but in Judea and Samaria, and ultimately to the ends of the earth. And these may not have been the most educated guys around, but they were smart enough to know that they weren't smart enough or strong enough, but that they desperately needed God to live the gospel life and to proclaim the gospel life. And so you know what they did? They got on their knees 
in a profound act of humility and said, God, they confess, God, we've been wanting to go our way. We've been wanting the path to look like this. But God, we repent of that. We ask your forgiveness for that. And God, we're telling you today, we're humbling ourselves to say, God, we want your way. They got on their knees in a profound act of humility, and then they got on their knees in a profound act of unity. All of them together, crying out to God, asking God for the same thing. Not asking God, give me my way. And God, make the carpet in the, in the fellowship hall green instead of red, okay? They weren't arguing about stuff like that. They had one purpose. God, send your spirit and save this world. And then they ultimately got on their knees in a profound act of dependency. God, we need you. And then notice the outcome. They were together for 10 days, humbly waiting, desperately praying, and God's Spirit came. And God's Spirit took control of these men and women. And God did in moments what they had been asking God to do and hoping God would do for centuries. All of a sudden, the glory of God was being known among all the nations of the earth. You know Robert Mullen's biggest problem? I don't desperately need God. Oh, sure, if somebody gets really sick, I need God. Okay, if, if things aren't going well at work, I need God. If family members and we're at odds and, and our children aren't doing what they're supposed to be doing or our parents aren't supposed to be doing what they're... And you fill in the blank, okay, oh, I, I desperately need God. But most of the time I live independent, self-dependent, codependent, instead of desperately dependent upon God. The only way we're going to be filled with the Spirit of God is to take on a posture of humility. God, I want your way. A posture of unity. God, it's no longer about me. It's about the we. And a posture of dependency that says, you know what? I'm going to get on my knees. And I'm not going to get up until God answers because I need God. I conclude with this. My, my grandfather had a saying. He was a witty man. He used sometimes, especially when us young people would be talking about something, you know, he'd say, you know, I don't think I understand everything I know about that. Some of you may feel the same way when it comes to being filled with the Holy Spirit so that you can live the gospel life and proclaim the gospel. You may be saying, I don't think, Robert, I don't think I understand everything about that. Well, here's my question. If you don't, don't you think you better figure it out? For the sake of the gospel? For the sake of your marriage? For the sake of your family? For the sake of this church? For the sake of the community? For the sake of of the glory of God. Just imagine what could happen right here in your family, 
and in your church and in your community. Just remember you have the Holy Spirit. You just daily repent of those things which quench and grieve the Spirit and keep the Spirit from the Spirit working fully in you. And when you receive the filling of the Spirit, that is giving Him control again. And all of a sudden, God begins to do the miraculous. You say, where do I start? I'm going to suggest two ways. Number one, go home this morning, excuse me, go home this afternoon, and turn off your phone, and shut off the TV, and get on the back porch, find some place where you can get alone with God, and repent. God, I'm sorry in this category, in this category, in this category, I've wanted my way. God, I've got this relationship with this person and this person and this person. And God, quite frankly, I've been self-dependent. I've not been desperately dependent upon you. God, I give it all to you. Fill me, control me by your spirit. And then I, I just thought of this other one when I recognized and realized that your pastor is away. By the way, I commend you as a church in giving your pastor this season to become uh, to just get alone with God and to be refreshed personally in God's presence, to, to do a lot of this. I commend you, okay? Maybe while your pastor is away, some of you leaders could say, you know, we need to get together. We need to get on our knees like they did. And we need to repent. And we need to pray. And we need to ask God to fill us individually, fill this church collectively so that this valley would be filled with the knowledge of God. That's what Pentecost means. That's the Holy Spirit that's available to you. I hope you'll be blessed and encouraged by it. Pastor.